thank you so much. Good to be back. If, I, if I'm a little rusty this morning, this whole week, I've been outdoors for a total of 30 minutes this whole week. So the only person I've talked to was my wife and yelling at my five kids. Outside of that, I haven't had any human interaction <laughs> for seven days, hadn't seen sunlight for seven days. And so if I feel if I'm a little rusty, please understand it's because of that. Well, in preparation for our study this morning, I think God is telling us we're going to close out 2 Timothy. I feel fairly confident in the Lord, if it is the Lord's will, that we will finish out 2 Timothy in two weeks. So by the time uh, mid-July, we'll be done with this book. We've been in this book far longer than I can remember, several years, probably longer for me to exposit it than... I don't know. Anyways, uh, even longer than we int- intentioned, we will be done. And uh, for preparation of, the, of our study, I read uh, Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity, and he was tremendously helpful to me in preparing our, 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 our study this morning. Um, he begins that book with this question, uh, and he got that question from uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. The question is, what if what would things look like if Satan took control of a city? What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? And would it look like uh, downtown LA after the Lakers' victory? Right? All those maniacs celebrating by burning a taxi cab and you know, trying to set fire on trash cans and acting like fools out there. Is that what a city would look like? Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario. He speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia... All of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Streets would be pristine with uh, tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing whatsoever. The children, all the children would be nice to their daddies. They would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. That's his uh, conclusion. And I... I agree. Uh, I, would, I would ask another question. What would happen if Satan took over a church? If Christ and the Holy Spirit left a local, a, a local church, what would happen to that church? I, I, I believe uh, it would result in everyone being externally more godly. Everyone not missing Sunday, coming early and staying late. Right? Not, right? They, would, they would be devoted to church uh, they would be more disciplined in their spiritual lives, spend more time in prayer, more time in the Bible, less time in media, TV, entertainment. They would stop drinking, smoking. They would even stop secular music. They would stop even drinking caffeine. And they would commit themselves to good works, caring for the community, even devote themselves to global missions. For several years of their lives, they would devote to going to the toughest part of the world to proclaim the, uh, the message of the Bible or preach the law. Now, my, my conclusion is not based on my imagination, but it's based on reality. I'm describing uh, any of the churches that are out there named you know, Roman Catholic Church or Jehovah's Witnesses or the Latter-day Saints. These are churches where Christ has left, the Holy Spirit is not, ministering in their midst. And what do we see? You go to uh, Salt Lake City, you go to the Mormon, talk to the Mormons, they're devoted to their family, they have family worship every night, they spend a whole day at church, 
two years, two years of their lives dedicated to, to global missions. They give, they give their resources, their possessions, their their, mon, uh, their, their money to the church and to their, to their efforts. I mean, they don't drink smoke. They don't commit adultery. They don't divorce. And by and large, they don't even drink. They don't drink coffee. They don't drink, you know, uh, uh, sodas. Um, these are that, that's the that's we see re- reality uh, for ourselves of these uh, churches without Christ. What happens to them? Now, the Christ has not just left uh, the Roman Catholic Church, or the Mormon Church, or Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I think the sad truth is that Christ and the Holy Spirit has left many uh, professing many churches that profess Christ. Many congregations that profess the name of Christ, the Lord is not in their midst. The Holy Spirit is not ministering to them because they're not preaching the gospel of the Lord. Um, Based on numerous studies conducted by George Barna, he concluded this, quote, to increasing millions of American Christians, professing Christians, (coughs) their God exists for the pleasure of mankind. He, he defines the God of American Christianity as uh, uh, therapeutic moral deism, where God res- resides in the heavenly realm solely for man's utility and benefit. Uh, he said, in short, the spirituality of America is Christian in name only. We, des- we desire experience more than knowledge. We prefer choices to absolutes. We embrace preferences rather than truths. We see comfort rather than growth. Faith, faith must come on our terms or we reject it. We have enthroned ourselves as the final arbiters of righteousness. We are the ultimate rulers of our own experience and destiny. We are the Pharisees, the new Pharisees of the new millennium. So the God that is worshipped in, in countless churches in America today is not the God of the Bible, but a God fashioned in the image of man. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping a God that is uh, there to serve man and is subservient to man. What has happened um, to these professing churches is not unusual. Um, this is the natural digression of Every Christian, every church, every Christian movement, apart from the gospel of Christ. This is why Paul gave the command in verse 2. Verses 3 and 4 is the reason behind verse 2. If you look at the first word of verse 3, you'll notice the, the word for. It's a conducting word, it's a conjunction, because of verse 3 and 4, you need to do verse 2, Timothy. See, the only remedy, only protection, the only purifying force in the life of a Christian or a church from this digression is the gospel of Christ. We've seen this throughout church history. You study church history and you'll be shocked to find that Christians lost the gospel for hundreds of years in the dark ages. The gospel was lost. They had all these people in Christian churches and they didn't know the gospel until Luther and Calvin discovered it by going back to the scriptures in the 15th century. Hence the Reformation, right? Revival, renewal, rebirth, not just for them, 
for all these people who thought that they were Christians, who thought that they were righteous, God opened their eyes, God saved them, and gave them new birth. This uh, going astray, this, uh, this, this digression was, was, uh, was stopped and reversed by the gospel. We see it in church history, and this is why Paul is telling Timothy, Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word in synopsis and always be prepared to proclaim the message of Christ, the testimony about our Lord, the word of truth, the saving message of justification through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Timothy, do not fail to, to constantly, continually preach the gospel. Why? Because for a time is coming and has not come when the people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to teach them what they want to hear. And they will stray from the truth and wander off to myths. Again, verses 3 and 4 is the reason behind verse 2. Because this is the reality. And this is proven not just by not just by the fact that it's in the Bible, that this is the inerrant word of God, what we see here is truth, but it is proven by uh, empirical evidence, by looking at church history, looking at recent church history, looking at Christianity today, that this is the natural pattern of things, natural way of things, that things fall apart away from Christ. Now, go to verse 3, and, and let's look at who are these people. It's important for us to recognize that these people are not non-Christians. These aren't people outside the church. These are people who are in the church and who profess to be Christians. They're the same people that Paul described in chapter 3 of the same epistle, verses 1 through 5. People who are professing believers, but it's all external. It's all outward. It's all um, a mask. Right? It's, it's all outward behavior in, in their hearts. Right? In, in, in the privacy of their own, on, 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 in the inner man, they are lovers of self. Right? They love themselves. They are lovers of pleasure. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're abusive. I mean, they're incredibly self-centered. Right? They're unbelievably self-confident. They are disobedient to their, even their own parents. Parents that gave them life, nursed them, changed their diapers, loved them, right? The whole lives... And they are disobedient. They do not honor their parents. So they are anti-authority. Right? They're independent. They're self-willed. And these have awful character. They're heartless, unappeasable. They're slanderous. They have no self-control. They're brutal. They're not lovers of good. They're treacherous, reckless, fallen, with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. But verse 5, but they appear to be godly. You can't see verses 1 through 4 in their lives. All you see is, is, is this appearance of godliness. But when you look closer, you see lack of spiritual power, lack of true transformation of the heart. Whereas just humility and gentleness and meekness and kindness, lowliness, lovers of God, lovers of others, self-effacing, self-accusing. You look closely, all of this is missing. But what is present is so much religion, 
so much external obedience. They have the appearance of godliness, but they lack power of the gospel. And this is the way it's been since the beginning. In Isaiah 29, 13, God said, These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but inwardly you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Externally you are so righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Colossians 2, 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its dead regulations? Like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. All these rules and regulations, all these laws that they live by has an appearance of wisdom, spiritual godliness. Asceticism and severity to the body. Paul said they have no value in stopping the flesh, the indulgence of the flesh. So these are people in the church. They appear godly. They appear righteous. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And they will not endure sound teaching. They can't handle. And what is sound teaching? Uh, the Greek word is, what is the Greek word here? Where is it? Hygiaino, um, which is where we get the word hygiene. Right? Clean, healthy, wholesome, sound doctrine. How do we differentiate sound doctrine with false doctrine? 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Paul defines it. Any doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel is sound doctrine. Any doctrine that is against the gospel is false doctrine. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's sound doctrine. It's how we use it. We could use the law to corrupt the man. I mean, like Joel Osteen concludes every sermon with, go find a biblical church. He uses scripture. He opens up the Bible and, and explicates portions of scripture, a lot of it erroneously, but some of it rightly, and leads people astray. The test is not whether it's in the Bible or not. People have used the Bible for, for wrong ends. It's whether their conclusions are consistent, they're in accordance with the gospel or contrary to the gospel. And so these people, they hear doctrine that is in line with the gospel of sovereign grace, and they will not endure it. They can't tolerate it. All right. they have, they're impatient. They, they can't accept it. They have this, um, they war against it. They rage against the gospel, and they rage against any teaching that opposes the gospel of Christ. And these are people in the church who look godly, seem righteous, they will not endure it. Instead, they will accumulate for themselves because they have itching ears. It's a metaphor for uh, they crave to hear what they already believe. Right? They, wa- they want to hear something that, that they already agree with. They don't want an alien truth. They don't want a foreign doctrine. They want a theology or doctrine that they already believe that is resident in them and they want someone to teach them what they already believe, that teachers will agree with them. And they will accumulate for themselves such teachers to give them what they want. This is seen throughout, throughout the scriptures in Mount Sinai. 
the God that was presented to Israel, Yahweh, was so terrifying, was so hor- horrifying, so stirred in them such shock because he was so holy and they were so sinful. They said, Aaron, uh, give us an idol. Make us a calf. So we can't handle this, this God of, of, of Israel, this, this Yahweh, the self-existent one. In Deuteronomy 18, God prophesied how Israelites will want a king. God will not be enough for them. They will want to be just like the nations, uh, the neighboring nations. They would ask for a king, and God, God's heart was broken. Uh, and same thing in the church. Professing Christians will say, give us something, give us anything, except for the gospel, except for sound doctrine in the course of the gospel. Give us something but Jesus Christ. Now, they want something that they're passionate for. Their, their souls, their, their intestines, their guts, they, they yearn for. And what is, what is this that, that people long for, professing Christians? Now, this is, um, it's important for us here to uh, re- remind ourselves th- that this is an ancient text. We need to um, pull away our Ethnocentric um, glasses, our lenses. Right? We, we, you know, we, we're, we're so we think like the NBA championships is the most important sporting event in the world. But we forget, no, compared to the World Cup, it is, it is nothing. Ten percent of the world watches the NBA championships. Eighty percent of the world is watching the World Cup. The most popular sport in the world is not even close. It's not basketball by far. It's, it's it's not even soccer, it's football, right? It's not soccer, it's football. And it's not American football, it's the real football. Um, likewise with the scriptures. In our 21st century American Christianity, we think people are passionate, longing. What Paul is talking about is, is uh, um, antinomianism, cheap grace, right? easy believism. That is what Paul is warning, warning against. But that's not the threat in first century New Testament Christianity. Those weren't the enemies of the gospel. Cheap grace, antinomianism, easy believism. That didn't, that wasn't a threat. There were semblances of there here and there, but the real threat was um, the legalists. It wasn't the antinomians, it was the pronomians. Right? They're not a race from Star Trek. Right? It's an actual theological term. They're pro-namas, right? They're pro-law. That was Paul's fight. Men and women who sought to be accepted by God through works of righteousness. They wanted God's approval through their obedience to God's word. In Philippians 3, 2 through 4, he called them dogs. They called them evildoers. Those who mutilate the flesh. They think they have confidence in the flesh. I have confidence and I have more. And all my accomplishments in the flesh, all my religious deeds are like rubbish. They're dung, they're excrement compared to knowing Christ. And for these men to cherish and uphold dung, they are dogs, they're evildoers. In Galatians 1, 6-9, he called these men anathema. They are preaching not a, it's not, you know, many false teaching. They're not getting the details wrong. They're not making a small error. They are accursed by God. 
Right? They are enemies of God. They're under God's judgment and condemnation because they're preaching a completely heteros gospel, a different gospel that is not gospel at all. So much so, later on in the book in Galatians 5, he talks about them, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. They're trying to find approval before God through works of the law. I hope they would emasculate themselves and be done with it and realize there is no benefit before a righteous God when sinful men try to obey and find righteousness through obedience. Now, why are people so passionate for the law, for rules and regulations? Because the arc of mankind curves towards wanting to contribute to our standing before God. That is the the bent of our hearts. We have, all of us have a little bit of Brian Scalabrine inside of us, right? Who is Brian Scalabrine? He's a Boston Celtic in 2008. He didn't play a single minute of the final series when they beat the Lakers. And yet after the game, he was in street clothes the whole series. didn't play a single minute. After the final game they won, he went to the locker room, changed into his uniform, and went to the press conference. And was answering questions about the series. And they're like, you didn't play at all. But he said, I was still a part of the team. I'm in my uniform. Ask me questions. Right? We all have, remember that, Brian Scalabrine and all of us. <laughs> where we want to contribute. We want some glory. We want to boast. We want to do something. And, and, and you know, no one's so crazy, except for those like, few lunatics out there, where they'll say, 100% I saved myself. No one says that. Arminians don't say that. Pelagianists don't say that. Semi-Pelagianists don't say that. No, no one is so like just you know, grotesquely proud that they would want 100% of the glory. But we want... We want some partial credit for our salvation or our sanctification. And if it's 0.1%, it might as well be 100% because it is the same. You nullify the grace of God. Every man has pride and we yearn for some, some standing before God and also we want control. We want to be our own Lord and own Savior. We want to control our obedience. We want a list. And we want to check off our list. So we feel good if we obey and feel bad if we disobey. At the end, though, we're still in control. We'd rather have that than have Christ be, be, be in control. Now, you might, you might agree, yes, James, you know, in Paul's day, that's right. I agree with you. People were passionate. They were zealous for the law. Legalism was rampant. But not today. In 21st century Christianity in America, people are not passionate for that. I would say no. I would say today, all the more, people are passionate for the law. Still today. And verse 3 is still talking about people, professing believers, who are seeking after righteousness before God via legalism. Through the law rather than faith in Christ. Now there are many examples. You know, legalism 1.0. Many examples of that today in our world, Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, right, Reverend Moon, on and on and on. That's, that's legalism 1.0, right? That's, the, that's like you know, Windows 95. Uh, but legalism, 
very smart, very crafty. They've updated, right? They have a new and improved legalism, legalism 2.0, and that's legalism light. Legalism with a smile, right? It is a, a friendlier, gentler, kinder, funnier legalism, right? And Paul knew their tactic. Romans 16, 17, and 18, he talked about these, these men who cause divisions, create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Uh, they do not serve our Lord, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. naive. So they use flattery. They use smooth communication. Right. They're both legalists. Legalism, but one's the updated, the new one, the neo-legalism, the old is old legalism. So old, three contrasts. The old legalism was all about hellfire and brimstone. Right. Obey God or God will judge you. God will condemn you. God will banish you. Do not sin or God will punish you. So focusing on sins of commission. And so out of fear, motivate people to obey God. New legalism is more, much more positive. It's obey God to receive blessing. There is little or no mention of hell or sin or repentance or God's holiness. There's very little mention of sin of commission, but a lot of mention of sin of omission. Not loving others. Not loving yourself. Not caring for the world. Right? Not being salt and light. Not being a part of, the, of justice and truth. This new legalist, they do not call people to obedience out of hellfire and brimstone. No, they call people to obedience so that they might be blessed by God, so they might find favor with God. So their message is, do this list of things so that you might fill in the blank, have joy, you might have peace. Do these things and you'll be successful. Do these things and you have health, wealth, and prosperity in your life. Right? Just do follow this formula and you'll find your purpose. You won't be mired in mediocrity. You'll fulfill your destiny. You will be a better you. Right? It's different sides of the same coin. All legalism use hellfire and brimstone to control and manipulate people to obedience. But that doesn't work in a postmodern Secular society. So legalists just updated their version to fit the culture of today. And so people are selfish. They're self-centered. They want a positive message. So instead of being judged for disobedience, they, hi- they highlight blessings for obedience. Right? Through obedience, you can be blessed. The old legalism was a little more theocentric. It was a little more uh, trans- transcendent. It was more God-centered. So obey God, obey these rules and regulations because you'll be more accepted by God, approved by God. Postmodern people, they don't really are concerned with God. They don't really care about uh, being God-centered. They're more concerned about being approved by themselves, being approved by others. It's much more um, therapeutic, much more self-centered. So obey these regulations, these rules, then you have peace. Right? You have joy. You have good relationships. You have, good, you have a good family. Right? You have a good identity or self-worth. Right? These are the contrasts. And uh, I would say this is rampant 
in American Christianity today, rampant in churches. The clearest example I can give, and you might say, I'm not convinced, James. Right, legalism is alive and well in America. The clearest example I can give is uh, the, he is the most popular pastor in America today. Right, he is a writer of the best-selling books. His the Sunday worship service, their attendance is 43,000 and plus. They bought the old compact center, right, where the Houston Rockets used to play, and they fill it out every Sunday, multiple services. Joe Osteen. I mean, America loves Joe Osteen, and you listen to him, and you might love him too, right? I listened to this guy this week, and he's so smooth, man. He's so, so good. He tugs at your heart, tugs at your mind, uses humor, uses just like illustrations and stories. This guy is, is, a, is a master communicator. And he speaks about total victory, prosperity in every area of your life, whether it's family, work, or ministry. And he promises health and wealth in, in your life. There is no condemnation in his messages, but there is no justification either. But make no mistake, it is law light. 2.0 version, but it is still the law and only the law that he is preaching. He is not preaching the gospel. He is preaching the law. There is no announcement of victory in his message. There is a call to be victorious. There are no indicatives, but just imperatives. Good news has been sidelined and good advice is at the front and center. It's all about how to have health and wealth how to have prosperity, how to be successful. His uh, best-selling book, uh, Become a Better You, Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day. And the seven keys are not gospel truths. The seven keys are seven imperatives, seven commands. The first one is keep pressing forward. Right. A halftime locker speech. Keep pressing forward. Second is be positive about yourself. Develop better relationships. Form better habits. Embrace the place where you are. Develop your inner life and stay passionate about life. Do these seven things and you'll be a better you. And God will bless you. This is just a new version of Pelagianism. The same lie, just a new packaging. Let me just quote to you what he said in the sermon. Your faithfulness is noticed in heaven. Get up every day and give your best effort. If you will do that, not only will you rise higher and accomplish more, but God has promised your family that he's going to bless you and you'll find favor with God, not just you and your family, but your family line. God's plan for each of our lives is that we continually rise to new levels. But how high we go in life and how much of God's favor and blessings we experience will be directed, directly related to how well we follow His instructions. So it's all about God's blessings is contingent upon our obedience. If we obey, He will bless us. He continues, God is waiting for your obedience so He can release more of His favor and blessing in your life. Do you want to see more of God's blessings and favor? Then be more quicker to obey. Right? I mean, he's got a lot of things wrong with his theology. 
But I would say, you know, a major one is his legalism. He says all the time, God will bless you, God will honor you because you came to church. Your week will go better because you honored God. And and the clincher for me was, I saw this, somebody updated on their Facebook a few weeks ago. And uh, I mean, this guy is so good. He was preaching how the Bible commands us not to eat pork, ham, pepperoni. How scripture tells us we're not to eat anything that has come from pigs. And so he was telling the congregation how he loves bacon, but he switched over to turkey bacon, right? Not only for his health's sake, but to honor God. And he said, quote, if, I do, if I'll do what I do to care for myself, God will do what I can't. If I obey God and obey not eating pork, he will help me in areas where I can't help myself. And then he goes on and on about shellfish, shrimp, lobster, crab, and oysters. Now, he's a courageous man. This is a prophetic declaration. Right? This guy is a you know, powerful man of conviction. For you to preach not to eat pork in Texas, right? <laughs> Man, that's intense. That's, that's a strong guy here. Right? He's not a wimp. He's telling people don't eat pork because God's word says that. And if you obey that, God will bless you. God will take care of you. So legalism is not it's an antiquated, like, dinosauric remnant that exists in, in the museum. It's alive and well today. And it is found in every seeker-sensitive church. Every church that does not preach the gospel, they preach something. There's only two options. You either preach the gospel or you preach the law. If you're not preaching the gospel, you're preaching the law. And every seeker-sensitive church that caters to man are preaching the law. Why? Because that's what people want. They want a list. They want instructions. They want a how-to. They want a manual. Tell me how to be blessed, how to be successful. Tell me how I can manage my finances, manage my family, grow good kids, get my kids into a good school. Tell me there's a thirst and a hunger in the heart of man, and, and these legalists have figured it out, and they've updated it, and it's going on today. But we know how that movie ends. We know how that story concludes. It results in burnout. It it results in catastrophe. It results in disaster because it is just the same old treadmill of man trying to climb that ladder to God to be saved. And when the wind and storms come, it'll come crashing down. For it is impossible before God through works of the law. It is impossible. Three final thoughts um, to close our time. Michael Horton said that these people are like the generation described by Christ in Matthew 11, 16 through 19. How children playing in the marketplace, they played the flute, did not dance, sang a dirge, did not mourn. The Baptist, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking. And they said he had a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a gluten and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Legalists, they don't mourn and they don't rejoice. They don't mourn because though they think they have a high view of the law, they have a low view of the law. 
Right? They have a low view. They see themselves as those who love and obey the law. They do not see themselves rightly as wretched, desperate sinners. But they do not mourn over their sins. They're deceived by their pride. And they are constantly judging others. Constantly sizing others up. And their internal monologue is that monologue of the Pharisee in Luke 18. Father, I thank you. I'm not like that guy over there or that girl over there. I am so righteous. She is so unrighteous. I am so wise. He is so unwise. I love you. He doesn't love you. I am so much better. Because of this word view, there is no true mourning, true godly sorrow. There is no clear apprehension of their wretchedness. There is no desperation for the Lord. But also there is no true joy in Christ. Because uh, they're constantly laboring to either earn their salvation or to keep up their sanctification. After about 10 years, their Christian life becomes miserable. Their Christian life becomes uh, that bike ride up a hill, up a mountain without brakes. It's drudgery. And they begin to uh, despair and hate Christianity, hate the gospel, hate Christ, hate themselves. So they can't rest. They can't enjoy. They can, there's no true joy. There's no, there's no exuberant praise in their lives. Contrary gospel Christians, we know sorrow. We, know, we mourn. Because we know by the gospel that we are nothing less and nothing more than just sinners. That even our most righteous prayers are tainted with our sins. There is nothing in us that merits God's mercy, grace, and favor. We know the law through the gospel, and we know the conclusion of the law, where the law says to us, you are that man, as Nathan confronted David. We know that we stand condemned before the law. We do not, we cannot, when we want to do it, sin is right there. And we do what we don't want to do. And what we don't want to do, we do because sin is in our flesh. And with that realization, we agree with Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop. Clean me with hyssop, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So Christians, we understand our sinfulness, so we mourn. But at the same time, we can rejoice. There is this inexpressible joy that is resident in the heart of gospel Christians because Christ has come and He has delivered us from sin. He has rescued us. He has saved us. He has forgiven us of all our sins. We're not in the third quarter down by 13. We're not in the fourth quarter down by three. No, the game is over. Scoreboard says we won, not because we did anything, but because Christ did it. We have have won. The game is over. So we can celebrate. We can rejoice. We can rest. We can be human beings who love God. We can enjoy 
our families. We can enjoy one another. We can enjoy the church because He has given to us eternal life through His Son. J.C. Ryle said, The brightest saint is the man who has the most heart-searching sense of his own sinfulness and the liveliest sense of his own complete acceptance in Christ. The brightest saint is the one who has the most heart-searching sense of his own sinfulness. The same time, the liveliest sense of God's complete acceptance where God looks at you and he, there's no disappointment, there's no anger, there's no judgment, there's no disapproval, there's no frustration with you. God looks at you and he accepts you completely without reservation. He calls you son, calls you child because of the cross. That is the brightest saint in the world. Secondly, I'll just close with this. It's two points. Um, this is why we need the gospel. This is why, as Christians and as a church, we need to hear the gospel. And as pastors, as commissioned by Paul, we need to preach the gospel to you. I know all of us, including myself, we sit here on Sundays, and our default state, our heart says, I'm dying here with my in my marriage. Right? I'm dying here with my husband who's so cold, right? who doesn't respond, who doesn't meet my needs. I'm dying here with a wife who is so unsubmissive, who is, who is destroying our household. I'm dying here with my kids who are out of control. I fear I'm going to lose them forever. I can't sleep at night because of my finances because of my job, because of situation with unforgiveness in our family, because of the wrongs that have been done to me, I am dying here. Give me the law. Tell me how to overcome this. Tell me how to change my family. Tell me how to change my kids. Tell me how to get my life, life in order, overcome my sins and, and become disciplined. Give me these rules and regulations so I can get my act straight. All of us, that's, our, that's what we're clamming for in our hearts. This is what we want. But God says, that is not what you need. We do not need messages on how to live the Christian life. We need messages on how we are to die as Christians. Because Christ lived and died on our behalf. What we want is the law. But God says, what we need is the gospel. And when we have Jesus, when we believe in the gospel, and God will add all these things to us. And even if God doesn't, even if our prayers are not met, our hearts are full of joy and satisfaction. Because in Him, as we sang this morning, we have everything we need. Let's, let's believe in 2 Timothy 4, 2-5, through 5, and tell our hearts the gospel is the most desperate thing the most desperate truth we need in our lives so that we might give glory and honor to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, confess 
so, so often, far too often. We want your truth for, for our lives. We want to use you. We want to use your scriptures to fulfill our desires. But Lord, uh, you tell us what is most needful is for us to see uh, how wicked and evil and sinful we are and to be convinced of that, be convinced of that judgment so that we would run to Jesus Christ and believe and hope in him alone and that through the gospel of the Son, receiving that complete acceptance, complete love, complete freedom is our heart's greatest need. So that every time we gather together, you are here. Our hearts will be indeed at rest. God, we thank you for your son. Lord, would you uh, purge from our hearts um, our sinful lusts and produce in us uh, a mustard seed of faith that, that apprehends the beauty of the cross and sees our li- that will see our lives in light of the cross of Christ. We thank you for, uh, for the truth of these scriptures. In the Lord's name we pray. Let's stand together. Oh, what a joy to be back to, back with all of you this morning. May we continue to have the word of Christ dwelling us richly and encourage one another oh, with God's favor and blessing. God, we thank you again. We go in peace where you have met us this day. May our hearts uh, overflow with praise and gratitude to you for all things. Our boasting is excluded. You have done it all. We give all praise to you, and it's in your name we pray.